Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Root, News One, and Scape, OVA News Blast, The Griot, Blavity, National Geographic, The Community Voice, and The Missouri News. Today, we'll begin with the continuation of The Search for Lost Slaves, Led This Diver on an Extraordinary Journey, by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. Costa Rica, a quest for identity. I head to Costa Rica to the small towns of Puerto Viejo de Talamanca and Cajutia, about 10 miles apart in Limon province on the Caribbean coast. I meet with cousins Kevin Rodriguez Brown and Pete Stevens Rodriguez, then 19th and 18th respectively, and their aunt, Sonia Rodriguez Brown. The young men started scuba diving with the nonprofit diving group, Centro Comunitario de Bueco Embajaros Embajadoras de Mal, ambassadors of the Sea Community Diving Center when they were only 14 years old. The center has galvanized and trained local teens and young adults as scuba divers and citizen scientists since 2014. People call us recreational divers, and we are recreational, says journalist Maria Suarez, a co-founder of the Ambassadors of the Sea. We are recreating diving. We are recreating the history of Costa Rica. We are recreating the way that kids relate to the ocean. Ambassadors of the Sea leads a community effort to help identify and document two possible wrecks of slave ships in their harbor, and it collaborates often with DWP. The Browns are one of the oldest families in Puerto Viejo, 200-plus relatives who look out for one another fiercely and have a variety of skin hues, even within the same family unit. Stories of late whispered in beds of night and over coffee in the morn hypothesize that maybe the first brown ancestor in these parts came in the cargo hold of one of the slave ships in the harbor. Historians and archaeologists have gathered evidence that strongly suggests the bricks, cannons, anchors, bottles, and pipes at a site in the waters of the Cahutia National Park belonged to two Danish slave ships, the Federicus Quartus and the Christianus Quintus. That site is just amazing, said Danish archaeologist Andreas Block, who has been helping ambassadors of the sea document the ships. You have this amazing story that's just lying there as an open-air museum for everybody to see. The two ships set sail from Denmark in 1708, heading to St. Thomas in the Danish West Indies, filled with 806 captives from West Africa. But the ships which were traveling in a convoy, partly because of concerns 
the captives might rebel as they had once before, were blown off course by bad weather and navigational errors. In March 1710, they landed in the harbor of Cahuita. The crews on both ships mutinied. The sailors divided the ship's gold among themselves, then burned the Fredericus and scuttled the Christianus after some 650 Africans still alive reached shore. About a hundred of the Africans soon were recaptured and enslaved, but some disappeared into the hills, into oral history and myth, some likely mixed into the local Bree-Bree indigenous community and left a line of descendants who still inhabit the area today. Kevin Rodriguez Brown says they know the Brown family is part Bree-Bree and part Afro, the term Costa Ricans use to describe people of African descent. But before diving at the wreck site, he always thought the Afro part was 100% Jamaican, since he knew Jamaicans came as immigrants to Costa Rica in the late 1800s to build a railroad. Sonia says the questions she and other members of the community began to ask deepened as the young divers started finding artifacts in the water. She wondered why this is not in history. Why our family never taught us that? Why the community never say anything? So I make myself a question, Sonia continues in her soft, lyrical voice. Who am I? And I think that is the most beautiful question that any people can do to themselves. Who am I? Who am I? This kind of questioning sounds familiar. Nearly 1,500 miles north of Costa Rica, along the Gulf of Mexico, are Mobile, Alabama, and Africatown, and other Afro-descended community. In Africatown, many know for certain that their direct ancestors came over in 1860 on the Clotilda, the last known ship to bring captive Africans to U.S. shores. But those descendants are also fighting to get the story of the Clotilda and Africatown more widely told. They ask, why is our history not in the history books? In 1808, the transatlantic slave trade had been abolished by the U.S., but an Alabama plantation owner and shipbuilder, Timothy Meher, M-E-A-H-E-R, made a bet with a group of northern businessmen that he could bypass the law. He sponsored an expedition to West Africa and transported 110 captive people to the U.S. on the Clotilda. Two died en route. The captain burned the ship on its return to hide the evidence, and Meher dispersed more of the captives to the expedition's financial backers. He kept 32 people for himself. Five years later, the Civil War ended, and the captives were emancipated. The men worked in lumber and gunpowder mills and at the rail yards. The women grew vegetables and sold produce door to door. Some of these men and women who had arrived on Alabama shores, naked and in shackles, managed to save money and eventually bought 57 acres on which to build their own version of home. 
More than 150 years later, Africatown still exists, having experienced a heyday in the 1960s with more than 12,000 residents and barbershops, grocery stores, churches, a cemetery, and plenty of descendants who still have letters, pictures, documents, and stories passed down through the generations. They had the brilliance and the intellect and the passion and the wherewithal to do all those things. I look back and I even try to reflect over. What did I do in 10 years? Laughs Jeremy Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, whose ancestors on the ship were named Poli, P-O-L-L-E-E, and Rose Allen. If that doesn't get you excited, understanding that the DNA resides in you, I don't know what will. In 2019, a team of archaeologists announced the discovery of the remains of the Clotilda in a remote arm of the Mobile River. The wreckage had settled deep into the mud, which helped preserve much of it. It's the most intact slave ship ever found. People in the community kept saying, we need to find the ship, says Sadiki, who was part of the search team. They knew how important it was to find a tangible artifact that got them where they are to help tell their story. Most African-Americans cannot trace their roots back to a slave ship. They hit what genealogists call the 1870 brick wall. Before 1870, the U.S. Census did not track living enslaved people with names and identifying details. On one of my last days in Costa Rica, Maria Suarez, Kevin Rodriguez Brown, and some of the other young people take me out on a boat to see the wreck site for myself. Mask and gear on, I descend. The water is murky blue and green. It feels warm against my skin. Schools of fish swim by. I descend deeper, feeling at home underwater. Then I see it, the outline of an anchor. It's partially buried and crusted in coral and surrounded by grasses on the ocean floor. This ends the second to the last series of the article titled, The Search for Lost Slave Ships, led this diver on an extraordinary journey by Tara Roberts, National Geographic, February 7th, 2022. The final series will be read during my next recording. The next article is titled, Lawmakers Weigh Bills to Offer Suicide Prevention Training as Mental Health Issues Rise by Tessa Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, Missouri Independent Community Voice, March 29, 2022. With mental health issues on the rise nationwide, Missouri lawmakers are weighing bills that would provide pharmacists and teachers with more training to recognize the signs of suicide. A bill sponsored by Representative Adam Schwadron, S-C-H-W-A-D-R-O-N, Republican, St. Charles, heard Monday in the House Health and Mental Health Policy Committee, would allow suicide awareness and prevention 
to be an option pharmacists can choose as part of their required continuing education. Meanwhile, a bill passed out of the committee last week and sponsored by Representative Ann Kelly, K-L-L-E-Y, Republican Lamar, would similarly allow suicide prevention training to count towards teachers' professional development and also require that the new Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number 988 be printed on student ID cards issued to students in grades 7th to 12th grade. With my religion, if you save one life, it's as if you save the world, said Schwardrun, who is Jewish. So if this legislation will help save one life, then it would be worth it. In 2020, suicide was the 12th leading cause of death for all ages and second for 10 to 14-year-olds, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The bills come at a time when mental health issues have been on the rise during the pandemic, and Missouri Children's Hospital leaders have warned a pediatric behavioral health crisis. About 4 in 10 U.S. adults reported symptoms of anxiety or depression in January 2021, an increase from the share of 1 in 10 adults who reported these symptoms from January to June 2019, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation analysis of the U.S. Census Bureau data. Those symptoms were especially acute in young adults between the ages of 18 and 24, with 56% reporting symptoms as of December 2020. The age group was also more likely to report substance use and having experienced suicidal thoughts. Neither bill mandates that the training be required, but allows it to count as an approved option in each field. Schwardron's bill would direct the Board of Pharmacy to recommend licensed pharmacists in retail locations obtain two hours of continuing education in suicide awareness that could count towards the 30 hours needed every two years to renew their license. Some lawmakers raised questions as to the impact a pharmacist could make in a brief interaction with a patient. Schwardron noted that pharmacists can check to see whether a person's medications may interact negatively with others and stressed it would also help them know how to look for the right signs. Even with that limited interaction, they might be able to see the signs as a result of this education that would at least raise a flag, Schwardron said, so they could even ask a simple question of, are you okay? Kelly's bill, which was heard in committee earlier this month and passed unanimously, would similarly allow the training, which could be completed through a review of materials on one's own time, to count as two hours of required professional development training. Earlier this month, lawmakers expressed support for the training to be mandatory and to have suicide prevention taught to students too. They see their friends dying and they want to do something, said 
Representative Susie Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K, Republican, Lebanon. Kelly noted many schools already touch on these topics with their students. The bill would also require that starting in the 2023 to 2024 school year, schools issuing student ID cards to the 7th to 12th graders must print on them the three-digit number 988 that starting in mid-July will act as a new way to route callers to the National Suicide Hotline. This is the perfect time for the state to pass legislation that is complement and emphasizes Missouri's new suicide hotline number, 988, Kelly said, later adding, we definitely need lots more mental services for everybody. In his fiscal year 2023 proposed budget, Governor Mike Parson, P-A-R-S-O-N, recommended $28.5 million to help fund the transition to the 988 hotline. Missouri expects to receive more than 172,000 calls once the number is live, more than four times the current call volume, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported. We think the advent of the 988 line is a really important step towards making sure people have a system to fall into when they're in crisis, said Jessica Petrie. P-E-T-R-I-E, a lobbyist who testified in favor of the bill on behalf of the Missouri chapter of the National Association of Social Workers and the BJC Healthcare. And this is a really clever way to increase awareness of that, especially among our vulnerable students. Many health issues among youth were already increasing prior to the pandemic and may have been exacerbated by its onset. A U.S. Department of Health and Human Services study published this month found that between 2016 and 2020, the number of children between 3 and 17 years old diagnosed with anxiety grew by 29%, and those diagnosed with depression grew by 27%. The Department of Elementary and Secondary Education announced last week it was using federal relief funds to offer mental health first aid training to schools at no cost to identify and respond to signs of mental health and substance use in adults and teens. Kelly's bill is named the Jason Flat F-L-A-T-T, slash Avery Ryan Cantor, A-V-E-R-Y-R-E-I-N-E-C-A-N-T-O-R, act after two high school students who both died by suicide. Flat was from Tennessee, while Cantor attended Lafayette High School in Wildwood, Missouri. Representative LaDonna Appelbaum, A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M, Democrat St. Louis, has worked with Kelly on the legislation since 2020 and said earlier this month, Cantor's mom had sent her a letter one of Cantor's friends wrote after Cantor's death. And I want to read it so bad 
but I don't think I'll get through it, Appelbaum said as she urged lawmakers to support the measure. Various education groups like the Missouri NEA and Gifted Association of Missouri and the Missouri chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics also testified in support of the bill, which now awaits to be brought up for debate on the House floor. No one testified in opposition or support of Schwadron's bill, which has been filed since 2014, he said. It's named after Tricka Leanne Tharp, T-H-A-R-P, who died by suicide at 31 years old. Her father, Patrick Tharp, was a pharmacist from Hannibal who founded the St. Charles nonprofit Pharmacist Preventing Suicides, Inc., and devoted his work to preventing suicide until his death in 2017. Schwadron noted that his wife also works with the son of Patrick Tharp and brother to Tricia Leanne Tharp, and said that pharmacists could make a significant impact in saving lives. This article is titled, Lawmakers Weigh Bills to Offer Suicide Prevention Training as Mental Health Issues Rise, by Tessa Weinberg, Missouri Independent, March 29, 2022. The next article is titled, KC City Council Adopts $2 billion Budget Supporting Improvements to Neighborhoods by the Community Voice, March 24, 2022. City Council has approved a $1.9 billion budget for fiscal year 2022 to 2023 that supports major improvements to essential services like street repair and resurfacing, snow removal, cleaning up trash and litter, while also emphasizing public safety through community policing. Over the last two years, we've made important investments in road resurfacing, expanded trash collection, and launched Kansas City's first in the nation zero fare transit initiative, said Mayor Quinton Lucas. But there is still critical work to be done to rebuild our roads, bridges, and sewers, increase access to public transit and broadband, make our city more resilient against the impacts of climate change, and invest in neighborhoods and communities that have been left behind too often by federal, state, and local officials. Kansas City's fiscal year budget reflects these priorities and so many more. Since the proposed budget was first introduced in February, City Council listened to feedback from hundreds of residents during multiple public hearings, which has led to several changes in the final budget, including these highlights. The rebuild of KC Grant Program increased from $10 million to $15 million in American Rescue Plan funds. Additional funding for Arts, KC Film Commission, and UNESCO to better support the arts and culture community. Additional $500,000 to support small businesses. Additional $500,000 to KC Parks to improve facilities, 
open more city pools and expand operations, most will be offset by additional revenues from expanded services. $150,000 to hire more development plan reviewers and construction inspectors in addition to the $1.7 million in new staff and resources being added to city planning. The budget fully funds the new housing and community development department with a focus on tenant advocacy, creation and retention of affordable housing, and homelessness prevention. This includes $12.5 million for the Housing Trust Fund, the second half of the promised $25 million, $2.5 million for the Tenants' Right to Council Program, and $40 million in additional funding for the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, funded through federal sources. The budget also allocated $33 million to the Community Policing and Prevention Fund, all of which will go to the Kansas City Police Department to support community policing and crime prevention while adding additional accountability measures and include increased pay for officers and civilian staff, school resource officers for public schools citywide, establishing community action network, CAN, centers in East and Metro Patrol, increasing our police force with a focus on diversity recruitment, violent crimes division, victim and witness support services, $6.6 million to fund the communications unit and increased pay for 911 call takers. The budget boosts public works to $145 million, an increase of $2.7 million to repair more than 300 roadway lane miles. Bike Share KC funding is increasing by 125,000 to nearly 300,000 to expand mobility options and programming. Kansas City residents also can look forward to cleaner and healthier neighborhoods with new funding for litter cleanup, $600,000, additional snow removal vehicles, $600,000, dangerous buildings demolition, $2 million, four new street sweepers, $2.2 million, expanded bulky item pickups, $650,000, and an increased tree planting budget, $250,000, while increasing Casey Park's mowing cycles this summer. Neighborhoods will also see resident requested projects with $15 million devoted to the new Rebuild KC program, increased from $10 million as noted above. The budget reflects the innovative ideas for moving the city forward as we recover from the pandemic's economic impacts, said City Manager Brian Platt, P-L-A-T-T. The budget also includes funding to increase salary skills for employees. This will improve retention, and recruitment for the city's workforce and follows a recommendation from the recent market pay study, which shows that the city employees have been compensated at below market rates. The city is increasing revenue through better EMS billing and parking control, as well as cutting costs by renegotiating existing contracts 
and reducing rent paid by consolidating office spaces. The new fiscal year starts May 1st, 2022. To read the full budget, visit www.kcmo.gov budget. The new fiscal year starts May 1st, 2022. This article was titled, KC City Council Adopts $2 Billion Budget Supporting Improvements to Neighborhoods by the Community Voice, March 24th, 2022. The next article continues March celebration of Women History Month and is titled International Women's Day Celebrating Black Women Pioneers and Their Many Historic Facts. Written by News One staff, March 8, 2022. Maisha Ross Porter made history when she was named as New York City School Chancellor making her the first Black woman to lead the largest public school system in the country. Appropriately enough, the announcement came during Black History Month 2021. Porter's appointment comes 30 years after educator Richard R. Green became the first Black New York City Schools Chancellor, serving from 1988 to 1989. Hattie McDaniel first Black woman to win an Academy Award. Hattie McDaniel was rarely recognized by an industry that shunned her race, but she remained dignified in the face of racism and other adversities while acting in over 300 films, many of which did not properly credit her. Segregation plagued the nation during the height of her career, but that did not stop her from becoming the first African-American to win the coveted Academy Award. Jennifer King, first Black woman NFL coach. Jennifer King was hired in 2021 to serve as a coach for the Washington football team, making her the first Black woman assistant coach in the National Football League's 101-year history. King says her appointment is a step forward towards changing the narrative surrounding racial and gender representation in sports leadership. Representation means so much, King said in a statement. It's really important right now to be a good representative, which I didn't have growing up. I didn't have anyone that looked anything like me working. To be able to see that, I think, is big. It's super cool to be part of this. Alice Coachman, C-O-A-C-H-M-A-N, first Black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. The 25-year-old Alice Coachman was competing in the first high jump finals in the 1948 Olympic Games in London when she became the first Black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. Coachman was recovering from a back injury, but still managed to soar. This jump from Coachman made her the first Black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. Her win was watched by over 82,000 spectators. Oprah Winfrey, first Black woman billionaire. Oprah Winfrey, whose name is synonymous with Black excellence, registered a net worth of $1 billion in 2003, 
making her the first black woman to accumulate that much wealth. As a result, the media maven has become one of the world's most generous philanthropists. Madam C.J. Walker, first woman millionaire in America. Madam C.J. Walker, who made her fortune in black hair care, remains the first self-made woman millionaire of any race in the United States. Nia Da Costa, D-A-C-O-S-T-A, the first black woman to direct a Marvel movie. Nia Da Costa has been confirmed as the director for Captain Marvel 2 for Marvel Studios, making her the fourth woman to direct a Marvel Studios picture and the first black woman to do so. The NYU Tisch, T-I-S-C-H, School of the Arts graduate also has directing credits on Top Boy, the British television drama about two London drug dealers, which streams on Netflix. Captain Marvel 2 was given a tentative release date of July 8, 2022. Maria Russell, M-A-R-I-Y-A, first black woman chef to earn a Michelin star in the guide's 94-year history. Whoopi Goldberg, first black woman to win EGOT Academy Award 1990, Emmy 2002 and 2009, Grammy 1985, and Tony 2002. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, first black woman to become a doctor of medicine in the United States. After graduating from New England Female Medical College in 1864, Rebecca Lee Crumpler became the first black woman to receive a medical degree. Serena Williams, first black woman to win a career grand slam in tennis. Loretta Lynch, first black woman to be attorney general of the United States, nominated by the first black president. Stacey Abrams, first black woman to be a major party nominee for state governor. The voting rights champion's reputation precedes itself. This article was titled, International Women's Day, Celebrating Black Women Pioneers and Their Many Historic Facts, written by News One staff, March 8, 2022. The next article is titled, Cigar Bay Updates Folks on Her Relationship Status. The TikToker said after 15 plus dates together, they're still at it, by Kui Mawai, K-U-I-M-W-A-I, Blavity News, March 29, 2022. Samantha Curtis, C-U-R-T-I-S-S, who went viral on TikTok after gifting her date a cigar, gave an update on her love life. As Blavity previously reported, Curtis decided to give her date a cigar after he shared with her that he was interested in cigars. She went to her parents' home before linking up with her date and picked a cigar from her father's collection. She later told viewers that the gift was a hit. Some thought Curtis's gift was too much, but it turns out it worked better than even Curtis expected. In a TikTok posted on March 28th, 
Curtis shared that she and her date, Greg Lewis, are still together. In the video, Curtis shared a picture of their romantic journey. When you're over dating and toxic men, but you give it one more try after seeing someone on IG, she said in the video, your date goes viral, 1.5 plus million views, and people tell you he won't give you a second date. And two months, 15 dates later, we are still here. She continued gushing over her date. I found someone who respects me, adores me, protects me, and pours into me, and moves with intention, she wrote in the post caption. A simple cigar to make a lasting impression on our first date led me to being the happiest I've been in a long time. Viewers flooded the comments with their support and well wishes. I remember the cigar video. I'm so happy for you, one user wrote. Congratulations. Can't wait to see this develop. Yay, another added. This is the update I needed. Love this. This article is titled Cigar Bay Updates Folks on Her Relationship Status by Hui Mawai, Blavity News, March 29, 2022. The next article is titled New Life, N-U-L-I-F-E, Kicks and Souls, S-O-L-E-S, for Souls, S-O-U-L-S, is Restoring Sneakers and Trust in Its Community by Noah McGee, M-C-G-E-E, March 20th, 2022. Everyone that's into sneakers loves to keep their kicks clean, right? Your sneakers must always look like you got them fresh out of the box, even if you got them months ago. Akim Anifowoshe, A-N-I-F-O-W-O-S-H-E, and New Life Kicks are ensuring that you never have to worry about your favorite sneakers getting dirty or ruined again. New Life Kicks is a sneaker restoration company based in Las Vegas, Nevada, that performs not only sneaker restorations, but also offers to customize your sneakers. They are essentially your sneaker care doctors, as Anifowoshi describes it. They also have their own line of innovative sneakers, sneaker care products, such as a crepe brush, nylon scrub, eraser sponge, sole brush, suede eraser, and many other products. He jokes that we are the sneaker doctors and we have a sneaker pharmacist. I mean, for some people, the condition of their sneaks is directly tied to their well-being. It's like that for me. But how did he get started in the sneaker business? What launched his idea to start New Life Kicks? Anifowoshi's interest in sneakers sparked while he was in high school. His best friend in high school's favorite pair of shoes were the cool gray Jordans 4s. And because it was his favorite sneaker, it also became Anifowoshi's favorite. Unfortunately, Anifowoshi's friend passed away when they were both 17 years old, but his love for sneakers followed him to college. Anifowoshe was a student athlete at Southern Utah University, studying to become a chemist with aspirations to go to the NFL. Up until his senior year, it seemed like his dream 
was going to come in fruition. He was on the NFL draft scout list and things were going well until he ruptured his appendix. I lost about 20 pounds and my physique, I call it my armor, was lost in eight days. It had me in a dark space and I didn't continue to pursue my NFL dreams, said Ani Bowoshe. While at his mom's house going through his sneaker collection, he wanted to post his favorite sneakers, cool gray Jordans 4s, to a Facebook group he was part of. But they were so dirty that he had to clean the shoes, repaint the soles, and give the shoes new life. At that moment, New Life Kicks was born. With the sneaker business being a worldwide multi-billion dollar business that everyone from kids to grown-ups wants to invest, New Life has seen a steady amount of business since they were officially founded in Las Vegas, Nevada in 2012. I was doing this way before it became a trend or a fad, and a lot of people have recognized the quality of our work way back when we first started, said Anifa Wushi. In the company's earlier years, they did not have money for advertising or marketing, so they had to rely on word of mouth. As a result, they have been able to not only grow their business, but to inspire others in their community. This led to Anifa Wushi also founding Souls for Souls, essentially the nonprofit sister organization to New Life Kicks. Souls for Souls help youth restore shoes and restore their lives by providing them with new sneakers, restoration, training, personal development and character building, and entrepreneurship training to help them learn the trade of sneaker restoration, create a business out of it, and find the financial freedom systemically is not made for them to find. You can be an outcast for not having nice sneakers and bullied for not having nice clothing. Most parents in America can't afford sneakers nowadays, said Anifa Woshe. We established Souls for Souls to give sneakers to youth to help build their confidence, character, and bridge the gaps that some parents that couldn't afford nice shoes, Anifa Woshe continued. Through this nonprofit, they have helped over 500 kids get some of the freshest Jordans out right now, while also helping kids become entrepreneurs and start sneaker businesses and companies of their own. We're teaching them the actual skills of cleaning and restoring sneakers. Some kids have turned into little businesses or side hustles. They are making their own money, said Anifa Woshe. But Anifa Woshe also shared the character you have to have as a person to be successful in the sneaker industry. It is full of people that deal in bad faith, are selfish, and willing to do anything it takes to get a dollar. If someone wants to get into just the sneaker industry, you've got to have a lot of character because a lot of people sell and restore sneakers. But if that person isn't trustworthy or hasn't developed the trust or good credibility with the community through word of mouth and reputation, it's not always positive, said Anifa Wushe. But with his business model, he hopes to do business with the character and trust that is oftentimes lacking in the sneaker industry 
and hopes to continue his business and nonprofit organization by restoring the world one sneaker at a time. This article is titled New Life Kicks and Souls for Souls is Restoring Sneakers and Trust in its Community by Noah McGee, The Root, March 20th, 2022. The next article is titled, He is Truly Invaluable, Dikembe Mutumbo, D-I-K-E-M-B-E-M-U-T-O-M-B-O, is still the NBA's greatest ambassador for Africa, by Mark J. Spears and Scape, A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E, formerly The Undefeated, March 16, 2022. Dakar, Senegal. There was a thunderous beat of the drums as the trumpets enthusiastically blared. Men proudly dressed as lions posed, growled, and intimidated. The dancers in the hundreds more than got their steps in to the beautiful native sound. And the seven-foot-two African flashed his famous smile brightly and swayed to the beat raising hands that blocked a lot of NBA shots. The buzzer had long sounded on the Basketball Africa League season opener, but the party was still going strong for Dikembe Mutumbo and the fans. I'm home, I'm home, Mutumbo yelled. In 1987, Dikembe Mutumbo Mukamba, Jean-Jacques Wamutumbo, left Democratic Republic of Congo with a USAID scholarship to Georgetown University in Washington, hoping to become a doctor. Mutumbo would go on to not only graduate from Georgetown, but become one of the school's all-time great basketball players. In 2022, the Basketball Hall of Famer is one of the greatest defenders in NBA history. But more important, Mutumbo has remained the NBA's greatest ambassador for Africa, and perhaps the world. So when the Basketball Africa League began its second season on March 5th at Dakar Arena, it was only fitting that Mutumbo was there, representing the foundation of African basketball. He is truly invaluable, NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum said of Mutumbo. He has been incredible. He's been an ambassador, not only a global ambassador for the NBA, but he's been ambassador for the sport on the continent and around the world, right? He is a global ambassador for us, but his presence here means so much because he is what when young Africans look up to an NBA player, they look up to Dikembe. Nigerian Hakim Olajuwon was H-A-K-E-E-M O-L-A-J-U-W-O-N, was the first African drafted into the NBA in 1984 and became a Hall of Famer who won two NBA titles with the Houston Rockets. Olajuwon is widely considered the greatest basketball player from Africa, but when the Denver Nuggets drafted Mutombo with the fourth overall selection in 1991, the bridge between Africa and the NBA truly began to be built. After Mutombo was selected, he shook then-NBA commissioner David Stern's hand 
as all the draftees did. However, Stern also pulled Mutombo to the side and told him he wanted to go to Africa with him. They later did just that. Stern, Mutombo, and other NBA players met anti-apartheid activist Nelson Mandela as part of an Africa tour in Johannesburg in 1993. Stern, who understood the importance of promoting the NBA to the world by playing exhibition games in Europe, getting games on television in China, and spreading basketball without borders programs all over the world, made Mutombo the NBA's first global ambassador in 2009. I believed Stern back then because he had the capacity and the knowledge to make things happen, Mutombo said of the former commissioner who died in 2020. He was a very smart man who wanted to rule the continent. I am so happy that our commissioner, Adam Silver, and Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum are following in Stern's footsteps very well. They are committed to the promise David made to see the continent shine. Mutumbo was an eight-time NBA All-Star who was named the NBA Defensive Player of the Year four times. His number 55 jersey was retired by the Nuggets and the Atlanta Hawks. But just as notable was that Mutumbo was also named the NBA's J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award winner twice for outstanding service and dedication to the community. Mutumbo has also been a big brother for Africans who are either playing or working in the NBA. Whether it's current players, former players, NBA executives or scouts, Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri, M-A-S-A-I, U-J-I-R-I, or Milwaukee Bucks star Giannis Adetokounmpo. Those working in the NBA with African ties revere Mutombo. Adetokounmpo is now an NBA champion, two-time MVP, and six-time All-Star. But he sees Mutombo and Olajuwon as the godfathers of African basketball. When the Greek native with Nigerian roots was not well known when he was selected with the 15th overall pick in the 2013 NBA draft, it was Mutumbo who made a point after speaking at the Rookie Symposium in New Jersey to seek him out to offer words of wisdom. I knew who he was, Akitokumbo, whose parents are Nigerian, said to Anscape. He came and approached me, huge guy. He said, you've got to make sure you take care of your body. You have to make sure you are coachable. You have to make sure you ice. You have to make sure you sleep. He was giving me advice on how I was going to prolong my career in the league. He said, a lot of people come into the league with great talent, but they don't last long. They're not healthy. The average of being in the NBA is four years. How do you beat that? That's the first step. He said, never leave the arena or practice facility without icing your knees and ankles and take care of your body. Since then, I've done it every single day. Mutombo's impact off the court in Africa has been felt since the mid-90s. In 1996, he covered the expenses for the Congo's women national basketball team's trip to the Atlantic Games and bought their uniforms. 
1997, he established the Dikimbe Mutombo Foundation, whose mission is to improve the health, education, and quality of life for the people in Congo. Mutumbo opened a $29 million hospital in 2009 near the Congo's capital city of Kinshasa, where 7.5 million people live in poverty. He also promoted basketball globally through Basketball Without Borders, which has included camps in Africa and played in the 2015 NBA Africa game. So why does Mutumbo care about helping not only Africa, but the world? I came to the point to understand that I'm not living in this world by myself, Mutumbo said. I live in a world surrounded by people of different culture, different languages, people who come from different places and different islands. I don't go and look for who's Congolese. I don't go and look for who's Congolese, who's African. I just look for people that are there. And I come to this point and say, what kind of investment are we making to ensure that the future generation have all the tools necessary that will carry them onto the next chapter of their lives? And I don't think anyone is doing enough, especially in Africa. I don't think we're doing enough. We still have a long way to go. But we need to put our resources together to make sure the future of the next generation are bright. And I might not get a chance to live in Africa again but I still want to find this generation that are left behind because I came from a generation that had nothing given to them and I don't want the next one to go through the same process. Ade Tokumbo offered his respect to Mutumbo's impact. A lot of African players look up to him, Ade Tokumbo said. He's always involved in anything that's going on back home in Africa. Mutumbo has also impacted Africa and prompted female farmers through Mutumbo's Coffee, which debuted last year. Mutumbo's Coffee sources its beans from African coffee farms that women predominantly run through the Women in Coffee Initiative. The initiative was founded in 2014 to break the fear of women to enter the coffee business. Through the initiative, Mutumbo Coffee says it has invested in assets of sustainable farms that grow the best African coffee. Moreover, Mutumbo Coffee says it uses the initiative to help export ready coffee farms, introduce and deliver their specialty beans to the international market, which leads to better prices. Previously, I heard about Dikembe Mutumbo because my dad was a big basketball fan and we watched the NBA every Sunday afternoon. Mubula Musau, M. B-U-L-A-M-U-S-A-U, the founder of You Take Coffee Limited in Kenya, told Anscape. Decades later, I was quite surprised when he started Mutumbo Coffee. I was like, is this the same person? Then I saw him on a webinar and I said, yes, for sure. It's many years later, but it's still Dikembe Mutumbo. After seeing him on TV, thousands and thousands of miles away, playing basketball, and now we're in the same sector, is something very special. They're supporting women in coffee in Africa. Mutumbo was ecstatic to be on hand when the 2002 BAL season began, where he saw his former Nuggets teammate, Robert Pack, coaching REG. He also joined Ujiri, U-J-I-R-I, in the Ivory Coast, 
on March 7th when the latter dedicated a basketball court. The Basketball Africa League was supposed to debut in 2020, but was postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic, which is still challenging the league. The league is scheduled to have qualifying action in Cairo, and the playoffs will take place in Kigali, K-I-G-A-L-I, Rwanda, both of which Mutombo plans to attend. The NBA's hope is that the league will help develop homegrown talent who will eventually play in the NBA or Africa. Seeing a professional basketball league that connects Africa as a continent means a lot to Mutombo. It's very emotional, a dream come true, especially for me being of African descent and as someone who has invested a lot of time and resources to the improvement of the game around the continent of Africa, Mutombo said. And now you see the reality that it has continued to develop. So right now we are celebrating the second year. It's like seeing a child that's sitting down and now just learning to walk, said league president Amadou Ball, A-M-A-D-O-U. We're only scratching the surface, but all indication is that it's a very, very bright future. You need talent. That's where it all starts. The NBA has had some tremendous ambassadors for the growth of basketball in Africa, in Ujiri, Fall, and several others. But when it comes to being the face of African basketball, it is Mutumbo who stands tallest. There were some kids from high school that came up to me and said, thank you, Mutumbo said on March 5th. People don't even say, how are you doing, no more, when they see me. When I'm in Africa, particularly, people just walk up, people just walk up to you and they say, thank you so much. And then you go and say, why did you say thank you to me? You're trying to figure out what did you do right now? We came in, we did what we were supposed to do, and then we set the tone. You set the dream for the next generation to succeed. You set the dream for everyone. You set the dream for everyone inside Africa to believe that here in Africa, you have the ability to perform so well on the basketball court and to succeed. And they have the discipline if you allow them to be at the right place at the right time, surrounded with the right people, they're going to succeed. This article was titled, He is Truly Invaluable. Dikembe Mutumbo is still the NBA's greatest ambassador for Africa. By Mark J. Spears, Anscape, March 16th, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankwe. Thanks for joining us.